Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, on campus at Carleton University. And here in Ontario, there was a bit of a, uh, a big news story with the provincial conservative government having a a resolution passed at their convention with respect to transgendered individuals. Now, normally, for those of you who listen frequently, you know that I try my best not to be reactionary and and get too much into new stuff, and uh, that's not what this episode is about, although I'm sure we'll talk about it, because this book has been on the radar for me for a while, and fortunately, we were able to set this up for this week, and I'm very excited to talk to Anne Travers, a associate professor in sociology from SFU, about the new book, The Trans Generation, How Trans Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution, and Anne joins us from what is undoubtedly a much less snowy Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome to the show. It's shockingly sunny here, too, because... (laughs) Yesterday, it was a monsoon, it felt like, but today, the leaves are sparkling in the sun. Well, congratulations. We're all, we're all very happy for you here <laughs> in central Canada, where the snow's been on the ground here already for a couple of weeks, and uh, oh. our friends at Environment Canada are calling for another 5 or 10 centimeters tonight. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so let's distract from the misery that is November snow uh, to talk about the new book here. Uh, again, The Transgeneration, How Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution. So normally we do have a lot of historians on the show. We've had people from sociology before. But just for anyone listening who is more used to a history approach, history methodology to this, how does a sociologist go about looking at this book versus what a historian might do? Well, I can um, tell you a little bit about that while plugging the recently published work of my colleague, Dr. Julian Gill-Peterson, who has published a book uh, called Histories of the Transgendered Child, History as a Tool for Justice. Um, I'm really excited about their book. But what Dr. Gill-Peterson does is they they were in the archives of the Harry Benjamin Institute and at Johns Hopkins. Like they went back and looked at our archival literature, case files, etc., letters that kids wrote to Harry Benjamin to show that transgender children are not new, that, you know, they've been around for a really, really long time and that there's just this, you know, historical amnesia. So that kind of work is incredibly important. It's not what I do, however, though. I interview in my work, I've interviewed trans and gender nonconforming children and youth and parents of trans kids. I've attended conferences for uh, children and families, um, trans kids and youth and their families. Um, I've, you know, paid a lot of attention to media issues. I've also intervened in my local community on behalf of trans people of all ages. So I'm more focused on the ways in which trans people are create, you know, are outsiders, how trans people experience discrimination. And I seek to intervene in that. Like I, I seek to uh, push for uh, institutionally just changes. And this is then obviously both with SFU and then at the community uh, level as well, which is great in terms of the outreach and making those connections. But with this type of book and given, you know, not that I'm overly familiar with the trans community, but, you know, you, you read stories about, the struggles of trans youth, how do you find individuals to interview given, you know, and we'll talk about sort of the, the, the way the community is in terms of who has the privilege, who has, who is in position to be able to be out and be supported. You know, how, how does that go? How do you go about finding individuals to interview? Well, I mean, you've raised a good point that the, the trans people who tend to be visible are the ones who, in spite of the fact of being very vulnerable, they're less precarious than the trans people whose voices don't get heard. And certainly the trans kids who remain pretty much invisible because they don't feel it's safe to show themselves or trans people, trans kids who, uh, you know, are living in poverty or, uh, you know, struggling under colonialism as first nations, Inuit or Métis people. Um, so you're already 
going to be, uh, you know, reaching the most privileged of an incredibly vulnerable group when you seek research participants. A lot of it is trust-based. I identify as trans myself, non-binary, and I think that um, I've gained credibility in trans communities and um, around my work on behalf of trans kids with the local school board, etc. Um, and, you know, as a result of this kind of advocacy, I have made connections with trans kids and their families, and they've seen me uh, standing up for them. So their willingness to talk to me, uh, you know, results from the kind of confidence they have in me. Also, once you start talking to some trans kids or trans youth, um, they, they are often in a position to refer you to others. It doesn't mean they don't give me contact information. Um, that's obviously not how research ethics works, but they'll say, look, I have a couple of friends. Why don't I send them an email with your contact information and I'll ask them if they can help you with your research. So I've experienced a lot of kindness and generosity. I've also found Facebook groups for parents of trans kids and Facebook groups for trans youth themselves, and I've contacted the facilitators and asked for permission to put out a call for participants, but I'm always very frank about my own positionality. They know that they're going to be talking to somebody who identifies as trans and who um, stands very firmly, uh, you know, on the side of trans people of all ages, so I think that helps. But there's no question that it's a lot easier to find people, um, you know, as a white uh, professional person myself, it's a lot easier for me to find people who are more like me, meaning relatively well-off white trans kids and their families. I, and I've, I've been successful in interviewing, you know, some trans kids and some families of trans kids who don't fit into that demographic pattern. But the, the easiest access I have is to people who are, are very much like me. So I always have to keep that in mind and not normalize or center my own, you know, identity and privilege in, in my writing. Right, because that obviously would be a, I don't want to say an easy thing to do, but something that could take place because in just listening to you talk, given your place in the community, it seems like there could be people who would come to you almost even for support to, you know, like if there's a parent, say, who has a trans child and they want to learn more about what that is, what it means. They might not have been uh, exposed to the community, anything like that. Like, Does that happen too, where you're looking for research people to, to talk to for your research, but at the same time, they look at you maybe as a source of information to help them with their own relationships within their families? It happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I'm really careful about is that when youth or family members contact me for support, I don't ask, I, I don't include in that conversation, by the way, can I interview you? I help them. I'm really happy to, you know, be the first point of contact for some people around trans issues because I, you know, I, I feel really proud of my ability to connect them with positive and constructive support. So, you know, I make that my priority. But also when I interview uh, families of trans kids or trans kids or youth, I believe that one of the really important things that I bring to the table is that I see them for who they are and I listen with great care. And, you know, sometimes I've interviewed trans youth who have been kicked out by their families, who've had to fight like you would not believe to be recognized for who they are. And my matter of fact um, acceptance of who they are and, you know, my treating them with respect and dignity, I believe is one of the the benefits that I can give, you know, that as an adult, I see them and I, I believe they are who they are and I try to give them as much support as I can. Right. And I don't want to minimize that, but it's such a simple thing to do, right? To, to be respectful to people uh, and treat them with dignity, but you're right. It can have such a big effect. And uh, I want to get into this more, but I just want to head this off before we get any deeper into this. I mentioned at the top, the, uh, conservative government of Ontario, well, the, the, the conservative party, not the government, did pass this non-binding resolution calling uh, sort of transgendered and, and uh, gender theory a liberal ideology. And, and I don't know, and if you want to make any comment on that as someone who's more versed in this stuff, 
than I am. I mean, uh, as someone who is not a gender studies person, I'm not a sociologist, any of this stuff. I mean, I, I see through that pretty pretty easily and how ridiculous that thing is. The, the government has not put it in place. It's just a non-binding resolution at the party level. But do, do you want to comment on that at all? It's very threatening and damaging. I mean, I think about the impact on, you know, trans kids or LGBT kids and youth and people of just hearing that, the you know, the ruling party in Ontario uh, doesn't believe that we have the right to exist and doesn't believe that we have the right to be treated with respect and dignity. I mean, that's really alarming. Um, it's 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 really disturbing, especially given that um, so much blatant transphobia has been happening south of the border. We see with the election of the Ford government in Ontario, um, the, you know, an attack on the the very, very hard fought for gains of LGBT movements in the past few years. And the, you know, the the slight gains we've made in making, you know, the lives of some trans kids just a little bit better. Um, this, in a lot of ways, you know, it's the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario's uh, way of, you know, calling open season on trans people of all ages. And it's it's really alarming. And it should definitely be taken as seriously as we are taking, uh, you know, the kind of racism that is um, being articulated by conservative groups these days. Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed, I think, and some of the reaction to this from people who were supportive of this resolution is just a general either misunderstanding of what transgender means and sort of a basic understanding of gender. And I think one of the things that, that and, and I'd be curious to ask you about this, the, the difference then between gender and sex and and what how much does biology play into this versus the social construction of gender roles and, and normative structures and all that kind of stuff like like how much does it seem to me to be just a misunderstanding of the verbiage used in, in this it fuels that or or do you think it is more of a situation of genuine hate for lack of a better term but I think the people who can get caught up in this um, can be ignorant, but I believe that uh, people who drive these agendas are um, out to maintain patriarchal social control because the two sex system, which is actually ideological rather than real. You know, if you look at the the research that's been produced by feminist science studies that shows that so-called sex different studies would be more appropriately called sex similarity studies. And if you look at, uh, you know, the work of scientists in the animal kingdom to show that this notion of only two sexes um, is like it's a cultural construction itself. Um, in reality, there's more of a continuum. There, you know, there's greater variation than just two sexes. So if you are, you know, really determined to maintain, uh, you know, the, the disproportionate power and privilege that is accorded to men in society, then the two sex system is a system you need to keep in place. So challenges to that system are incredibly threatening. And so with the, the people that you're working with and you're work uh, in the community how are people challenging this structure obviously the book is is about creating a, a gender revolution what sort of of methods are being used by individuals in order to challenge that structure that that is you're right it's it's very much uh, one that privileges certain people above others so what sort of things can not can people do but are they doing in order to challenge that that you're finding in your research I can give a really good example um, from Vancouver. Uh, a few years ago, the Vancouver Parks Board adopted a trans-inclusive policy that changed the way new facilities uh, were built and structured around gender. Uh, for example, at Hillcrest Community Center, the center in my neighborhood, um, it's a, a relatively new facility. And there's a large family or like mixed changing room where there are a lot of private cubicles, both for changing and for showering. But then there are also um, men only shower and changing areas and women only shower and changing areas. So there are a lot of options and um, there are signs up 
all over the the community center explain that you know people's gender identities are more complicated we might understand that if someone is in the bathroom and you think maybe they don't quite fit that instead of thinking that maybe they don't quite fit you just have to trust that they're where they're supposed to be but you know creating spaces that are um not organized around the two-sex system, I think is probably one of the best ways to proceed. Indeed, in my book, one of my central arguments is that, you know, on the basis of the fact that the majority of transgender children and youth are invisible because they don't feel it's safe to show themselves, um, we need to transition the spaces within circular. We need to eliminate um, sex-segregated bathrooms, sex-segregated sport and recreation and activities, sex segregated locker rooms, and instead make sure that privacy is available in locker rooms for anybody who needs it. Because I know that there are many people who are not trans, uh, you know, having to change in high school as being absolutely horrible. So I, I think that there are ways that we can create uh, more spaces for everyone, including trans kids and youth, by transitioning the spaces away from sex segregated open chain or sex segregated bathrooms. At the same time, we can work with kids from a very early age in public institutions to understand what proper bathroom etiquette is. Because by emphasizing the need to keep uh, boys and girls and men and women separate in bathrooms, we're you know acting as if bathrooms are safe spaces to begin with. But for a lot of reasons, they're not. For children and youth, there are spaces that are often outside of adult supervision. And, you know, a lot of things go on in bathrooms that, you know, certainly some of my informants reported that were quite horrible. So, you know, if we were to instead teach kids from a very young age appropriate bathroom etiquette and, you know, really build on the kind of work that people are starting to do around issues of consent with regard to sex and sexual, I think that we could create safer spaces. Positioning these spaces away from uh, the the two sex system, trans kids and youth, whether we know they're there or not, are going to experience a, a much less profound sense of crisis. You don't even put them in the position of having to choose. If you think about it, every time a trans kid is forced to choose, you know, the boys or the girls' washroom or the or the activity or you know, do they want to play boys' soccer or girls' soccer? For one thing. There are kids who are non-binary for whom no category works for them. And there are other kids who are just like profoundly uncomfortable. They they don't feel like they're their sex category that they're supposed to be, but they don't have the safety that they need to be able to say it or if they say it and it doesn't matter, nobody listens to them. So if we stop organizing children and young people according to sex categories, we eliminate that source of crisis and trauma. Right. But I think one of the pushbacks that we would get on something like that, especially with the physical spaces, is the expense. Like if you look at so where I am right now here at Carleton University in the uh, I'm in Patterson Hall, a building that looks like it was built just after the Second World War, sort of in that 50s era to retrofit this building would be an expensive thing to do. And one of the things that I've heard a lot from from people who are hesitant to move forward with inclusive space is has a lot to do with the, the cost of it. And it's not sort of on the surface, at least presented as a desire not to be inclusive and to ensure that everyone has a space, but rather one that it's just financially or even physically sometimes not feasible, just given where bathrooms and, and how that space exists. So what sort of steps can we take or, or would would you recommend in those to combat that type of argument? The first thing I'd like to mention is that, you know, that was one of the arguments that was uh, put forward about how, you know, merging drinking fountains and bathrooms for white and non-white people would be expensive because everything was already built or enabling access for disabled people into buildings or transit systems, et cetera, it would be very expensive. And we might as well just leave it this way because it was so expensive. Um, I think that when you have structures that exclude, you need to change them. And sometimes this can be done creatively. I'm at Simon Fraser University, for example, up in BBC. And um, in my the hallway that I work, there is a women-only bathroom 
There's a men-only bathroom, there's a single-stall, gender-neutral bathroom, and then there's a multi-stall, gender-neutral bathroom. And that is a change from only men-only bathrooms and women-only bathrooms, all multi-stall. Now we have all these options. So it has taken, um, you know, some renovating, but fortunately our bathrooms needed to be renovated anyway. But I really do think that we have structures that exclude when we say it's too expensive to change them, we're saying that the people that are being excluded are not important and they're not worth it. And that kind of just proves my point. Yes, you are. You're, you're definitely right about that. Um, and I think one of the other pushbacks that, that come from this, uh, as you said, the idea or the notion that gender specific restrooms and change rooms are safe spaces on their own. And that uh, certainly one of the things that you, you hear a lot about, uh, and I think this was the bathroom bill in North Carolina, one of the, the main defenses of it was that young girls now would be under threat from men who would just go into women's bathrooms. And, and sort of in that sort of discussion, it's a roundabout way to demonize transgendered people as being threatening in a variety of different ways. Particularly trans women. But the thing is that just fits into the whole stranger danger <laughs> myth. I mean, the most dangerous place for children to be is in their own family contexts or with people that their families trust. Uh, you know, people in positions of authority. Children are typically sexually abused by people that they have a relationship with, not by someone who jumps out of the, the bushes. I mean, one of the things I, I talk about a lot is that I, I believe in Canada, there are about two children a year who are abducted, uh, you know, and sexually assaulted and murdered by a stranger. Obviously, that's too, too many. And as a parent, you know, like I definitely think about that when I'm organizing my children's lives. But the, the changes that we've made in the lives of children, you know, because of stranger danger, have actually put them at greater risk. Most children these days, at least in major cities, are driven to school. And there are more children who are, you know, killed or injured in car crashes than there are being protected from, you know, uh, the abduction by a stranger. We've actually created more danger uh, by trying to keep our, our kids safe from a very, uh, you know, minor threat, like hideous if your kid is abducted, obviously. I don't mean to underscore or to, you know, make that not seem serious, but really um, more children are killed in cars, more children are killed in accidents. There are so many other ways that children are at risk that are not being addressed. So if we really, really cared about safety for kids, we'd be doing things like making damn sure, for example, that First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children were funded to the same level that non-Indigenous kids are. We'd be, um, you know, ensuring that clean water was available to everybody, that everybody had adequate housing. We'd be uh, concerned about, you know, the results of child poverty, etc. Um, but we're not. We're focused on the the incredible outlier you know some stranger who's going to come in and swoop in and harm a child in absolutely despicable and unforgivable ways but it really uh takes attention away from the ways in which that children right now are being you know systematically subjected to harm uh you know in ways that we could actually do something about but we don't Right. And it also makes me wonder, too, like, why do people care about sort of the, the gender identity of somebody else? This is something I've never understood, uh, frankly. Like, if, if uh, people can wear what they wear, like, they can pee where they want to pee. Like, it, these things make no difference, you know, to me. I mean, people are who they're going to be. And, and you said respect and dignity. And, and that's all anybody really wants to be treated with. And in your research, when you're dealing with maybe parents who are trying to understand their children, or and I don't know how much you get into people who are setting policies uh, against transgender people and, and trying to talk to them and understand what their position is, but can, can, do you have any sense of why people who oppose these sort of ideas of gender fluidity and, and put in place anti-trans legislation, like why do they care so much? Well, 
I mean, gender has like a really powerful history. I mean, it used to be that women weren't allowed to own property or make decisions about their children or vote. So it really mattered uh, that we knew who was who, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, with institutional racism that, you know, has been like like formally legal racism. You needed to have people of color not being able to, you know, be treated as white people so that the, you know, the system of inequality and discrimination would continue. So there's that. There's the really, uh, you know, obvious and oppressive side of it. But also um, one of the ways in which people uh, organize their their worldview and their social lives uh, is gender. Gender is a very, very powerful system. And one of the things that surprised me uh, when I became a parent myself was how little had changed from when I was a kid. You know, I had nice people, like people I liked, teachers that were generally good, telling me constantly what it meant that, you know, my child was a boy or a girl or what it meant to have, you know, children of a certain sex. Uh, you know, they were explaining uh, my children's identities, uh, on the basis of the M or F that, you know, they were assigned at birth. And I was incredibly shocked because I was very committed to having my children like what they liked and express themselves the way they liked and not, you know, be put into boxes, not be told what they're supposed to wear and et cetera. And I found that the unbelievable, uh, you know, effort to teach children that there are only two sexes and which one they are and what's appropriate for each sex. Um, it's so incredibly pervasive. So when you take systems of meaning that people take for granted away, I think there's some panic. And so then the reaction to that panic would be obviously these sorts of reactionary actions that are that are taking place. But it, it also seems to be in the context that and and this is my perception, and, and but I'm 33 years old, so I, it's hard for me to say anything that happened, you know, before the the mid 90s, that because I, I wasn't really conscious of anything before then. But it seems to be that the trans rights are an issue that has come into the popular consciousness in the past what five, ten years. I know that the 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 the, the rights struggle has been a lot longer than that. But is it is it something that in terms of widespread, this is now part of public policy, is is the public reaction to this stronger now that it it's more out in the open than it has been? Well, I guess in some ways, but, you know, it was, wasn't, I mean, they're in, still in parts of uh, the United States and Canada, uh, gender nonconforming children are being... Uh, exposed to corrective therapy, which is incredibly harmful. And there were a lot of government funding funded studies in the United States and Canada that supported corrective therapy. So, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, what happened when um, the I, the I, the diagnosis gender identity disorder in children was put into the diagnostic and statistical manual in 1980, which is the, you know, the the Bible that uh, health care providers of, you know, all sorts use to diagnose and treat. Um, th then it became contested because prior to that, people were trying to, you know, gender correct, gender nonconforming children. But when the diagnosis uh, was, uh, you know, put into the book, then, you know, people started to look at that critically because it went into the book the same time as homosexuality was removed from the manual. So the, the, you know, the political response to diagnoses is a, is an important site for activism. And, um, there were books that I think I read, uh, stuff in about, you know, like 1990 that was problematizing some of this, uh, you know, the kind of corrective therapies that were carried on. And really, I think since around 2000, there has been, uh, you know, some visibility around trans kids. And one of the things that happened, too, is um, parents of trans kids have formed, you know, social movements and have been advocating for their kids. And one of the things I emphasize in my book is that uh, the social movements of parents of trans kids are disproportionately made up of white uh middle and upper class, cisgender, 
mostly heterosexual moms, not because that group of people is more progressive or more accepting, but because they have the resources, both material and cultural, to do a lot of work around gender and sexual identity in schools. I think that, you know, white moms in particular are non-threatening and what they're able to do in a school context to get schools to do uh, gender and sexuality differently is is really worth keeping in mind. So there's a, a really important uh, amount of cultural work that has been carried out. And, you know, one of the one of the audiences that I have in writing in writing my book was these moms just to remind them not to center the whiteness and the relative wealth of their own children in their advocacy efforts. And, and isn't there a certain irony in that of the that if it's white women, white mothers who have that cultural capital to do this, but they're doing it in spaces where traditionally they would be expected to be like to, to, so they're, they're in spaces where they have this cultural relevancy and they're changing it through the power they have because of the expectation that they have. Like, is that, is, is there an irony in that? There is an irony. And, you know, on, you know, sometimes I, you know, it's frustrating to see how much power white moms have. But, you know, I, I catch myself pretty, you know, quickly and think, thank goodness they're using it for good. Um, right. yeah. And, you know, part of my outreach effort is to reach, uh, you know, these relatively well off white moms and parents of you know, extremely vulnerable, but uh, relatively trans kids and get them to trans kids in all their variety. I see these, uh, you know, these moms want to make sure that the trans kids in their, you know, in their schools are getting fed, are, you know, getting supported, that healthcare is available. I mean, and, you know, that's a, that's a real dividing line, um, especially in the United States, but still in Canada. In terms of who has access to trans affirming health care if they need it, you know, like most uh, most trans people of color will never access trans affirming health care. Some because they don't want it, but also some because it's just an impossibility. Right. Um, and so who is going to be able to take advantage of certain, uh, you know, gains that, you know, that that's a factor as well. Now, now, in talking about who has access to that, though, what is it about other groups? Like, so, so if you say that it's sort of middle class, upper class, white individuals who have, generally speaking, the resources and the the families are supportive in a lot of cases, uh, as, as you mentioned with with white mothers. Why is that not translating to other groups? What are the the systems or the, the social environs in place that it's so specific as to which kids have that supportive environment? Well, let me make a, a corrective. It's not that uh, families of color or First Nations, Inuit and Métis uh, or poor families don't support their trans kids. They just don't have the resources or they're so busy fighting racism or dealing with, um, you know, insecure housing, um, et cetera colonialism that they they don't have the resources you know they they're just they're they're literally uh seeing their kids rendered vulnerable in so many different ways that um you know being their kid being trans or gender nonconforming doesn't necessarily go to the top of the list it's incredibly false uh to think that uh communities of color families of color are less tolerant of trans kids than white ones, especially when we think about all the white conservative families and their intolerance. I mean, the, you know, the, the major movements of opposition to LGBT rights are white Christian families. They're not communities of color. Um, I think that, you know, just like uh, you know, white communities, communities of color are characterized by great diversity around issues relating to gender and sexual identity. But um, they're, you know, kids are just as likely to be accepted by families of color as white families. But their parents, if, you know, if like their parents just don't have the resources 
often like imagine being a single parent and you know you're working like and you're taking care of your kids you can't take the morning off necessarily to go in i mean when i talk to some of the moms mostly moms not there are some dads but the mostly moms the amount of time and energy they put into supporting their kid is amazing some go into their kids schools and give free gender workshops to the staff like they do the training themselves so they have the time they also you know they tend to be gender professors or they're people who have educated themselves to an extraordinary degree when they you know found themselves parent of a trans kid so but you're talking about incredible privilege to be able to have that time and access to resources as well as to have the kind of demeanor that has school staff willing to talk to you like i know with my own kids when i go into a school and i talk to a teacher um or i talk to the principal if i have a concern um if i'm not satisfied with the answer if i feel that my child is being underserved i know who to talk to and i know how to talk to them and that's part of you know growing up middle class with professional parents you have that toolkit and i also have the kind of flexible job that makes it possible for me to um you know reschedule what i'm doing most days and go in and talk to the teacher or principal at my child's school and that is not something that a lot of parents have and then it it seems to me that the result of that would be that as you've mentioned that the public face of the the transgender community then becomes a white face like the, the majority of the advocates that you see and the leaders of these movements tend to be white individuals and, and does that further then compound the problems for those marginalized kids do, do, that not only within their own families do they not have the resources as you mentioned to to push for things but also when they turn on the tv to, or on the internet, wherever, where they're finding the people in the public space that they don't necessarily reflect their own situation. Yeah, I, th I think that trans kids generally are, you know, very underrepresented. So I don't think that, you know, they, I don't think many trans kids see themselves reflected. But one of the things that uh, some of the parents of trans kids that I've interacted with, acted with have done is they take their kids to conferences for kids, trans kids and their families. And in spite of the fact that these conferences regularly offer bursaries and whatnot, they still involve travel and staying in a, a motel. And maybe, you know, um, they don't have to pay the conference fees if they can't afford them. But that's like out of reach for many families, you know, to, to go to Seattle or L.A. or Berkeley. You know, I'm just familiar with the um, the, the conferences for trans kids and youth and their families on the West Coast. I mean, that's just not accessible to a lot of people. But what does happen for kids who get to go to those, they do see other kids like them. And, you know, they often experience that as a lifesaver. Mind you, one thing that is happening with trans kids and youth is they get online pretty quick. And there is greater diversity, I believe, among um, trans youth online groups because the barriers to participating are so much less. Yeah, sort of just in preparing for this today, I, I did a quick look at some YouTube channels and there's a bunch of different YouTube channels that seem pretty wide ranging in terms of the, the topics discussed and, and also the individuals who are the, the face of them. A pretty yeah. diverse group. So having access to that sort of material and certainly there's been a lot of discussion about YouTube and the, the whole sort of family feature that has uh, made it harder to find LGBTQ content on there. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there is some availability of that material. So so kids can go find it. And, and that leads to a question, you know, the, the subtitle of the book, of course, how trans kids and their parents are creating a gender revolution, you know, in, in pushing the community, pushing for greater recognition, and the rights and having space and, and making everything, you know, be more equitable. What is the end game, if there is even an end game of the revolution that you're talking about? And what is happening in these communities that is is forcing this change, this revolution that you're talking about? Well, I mean, I can only speak about what I want the end game to be and what the, you know, what I would like to see happen. And that is that 
um, trans inclusion shouldn't be separated from other social justice struggles. Like as an advocate for trans kids, I'm also wanting to make sure that all kids have a warm and safe place to sleep, that schools are safe and supportive places, that they have enough to eat, you know, that um, the Canadian government get it together and establish uh, genuinely just relationships with First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples, which involves, in my mind, the return of significant chunks of land. Like all the things that are necessary to make sure that all trans kids are OK can't be separated. But, you know, as an interim measure in the immediate sense, harm can be significantly reduced by transitioning the environments that children and youth circulate in away from sex you know, the, the sex, the two sex system. I think that that is an immediate way in which, you know, some of the crisis and trauma that trans and gender nonconforming kids and youth experience could be considerably reduced. And what about on a micro level? Like I know, so, so for me, I, I, you know, I have a full-time job with Parks Canada as a historian. I, I teach at night here at Carleton and at the University of Ottawa. You know, I like to think that I'm pretty respectful to the people who I come into contact with, but surely there are things that that I could do better in my daily life. And so, for anyone who's who's listening, what sort of things, in terms of you know, again, respect and dignity are those two things that you mentioned early on. What are the what are the things that are sort of on a micro level, day to day level, that individuals can do to either contribute to this gender revolution or a, if not be an active participant, at least, you know, make sure that the environments that they're creating are are welcoming. Well, avoid organizing people uh, in gendered categories is a first step. Um, when you are going to talk to a group of people, you don't need to say ladies and gentlemen, for example. And it's so problematic anyway, because, you know, ladies is a, a term that, you know, was associated with middle and upper class white women. Um, but, you know, you can talk to, hey, folks, people, um, when you're talking with groups of young people, hey, people, like, hey, boys and girls, or hey, young men, you don't need to do that. You need, you can stop talking about people in terms of gender categories. You can stop, you know, you can stop yourself when you think you're going to make a stereotypical remark. And the thing is, uh, much like unlearning racism, we're going to make mistakes. Um, it's hard to change the way that we've been socialized, that, you know, Things seem so naturally. It's difficult to make the change, but it's absolutely important. We are going to make mistakes. You make a mistake and you go, I'm sorry, let me correct that. Um, one of the things that I've been working on, which I find very difficult, is unless someone explicitly tells me what their pronouns are, I'm trying to refer to everyone as they. Um, for some people, it's very important that they, you know, that you call them she or he, and I always respect that. But um, I'm trying, like with, you know, groups of students, for example, if I'm referring to a student, I'm trying to use they and I, you know, I, like, I fail a lot, but I'm, I'm working at that. I'm trying to, you know, use a gender neutral pronoun uh, as my go to as my, you know, my basic thing. Um, so I think that can make a huge difference that you just stop. Stop the, the gender you know, policing that you do unconsciously or consciously and, you know, just try to be a bit more open ended. Yeah. And I think with pronouns, it's an interesting one. I struggle with they too, because of the, the grammatical thing. It just sounds weird to me to refer to an individual as they. So I would, I think what we should do as a, as a, as just a, as a country, if not sort of a whole language is just let's come up with a new word for a a singular pronoun to refer to an individual that isn't he or she and then we don't have to use they and we can keep they for a plural i I don't know if that's even possible but i don't know that's a struggle that i have with it i think they works really well because we still use it for a single you know oh i asked her but they didn't want to you know like you it's not weird I, th I think they is sort of right there and we can we can let go of, you know, like I, I don't really think it's grammatically incorrect. And I also think grammar is only, um, you know, idiomatic anyway. We just, you know, say these rules are somehow institutionalized, but we change our language all the time. Yes, you're right. We do change it all the time, um, all the time. And, you know, I like like I said, I find it really difficult because I'm so used to he she. But. You know, one of my current goals is like, 
to use they as my default. And I believe that, you know, within a year or two, I'll get really good at it. But right now I'm not. Right. Like with anything else, it takes time. And especially with speech patterns, right? You're just yes. so used to saying the same things or you have these patterns that you're just getting grained. And, yeah. uh, and it's hard to, to make that change. Uh, and for me, you mentioned a bunch of terms that people can use instead of ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I'm a big fan of y'all. <laughs> I, I don't know why I started that. I grew up in Southern Ontario. I, I, I've been to the South a couple of times. I have no idea, but I love using y'all, uh, for some reason. So that's another one specific, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and I know my mom hates it too. When, uh, whenever we're at a restaurant and the server comes over and says, Hey guys, how are you doing tonight? Uh, she recoils at that. She like my my mom finds that to be just the worst thing in customer service, and and it happens every time we go to a restaurant. Yeah, or I coach little league, and as it happens, because little league tends to lose girls, they you know for a variety of reasons that are deeply problematic. But you know, typically when I'm coaching, I have an all boy team. Well, I don't refer to them as boys. I say, hey team, hey everyone, hey you know, hey friends. Right. Or, or even their words. And I just, they want to call, they want to say, okay, I'll be the bat boy. And I, you know, I convinced them, no, we're going to do the bat creature. And you explain, you know, picking up a bat has nothing to do with gender. And at first they're weird. And then, you know, they're calling it bat creature. And then they come back and go, no, I want to call myself the bat mobile. And I'm like, fine, you know, <laughs> just sort of encourage non-gender specific ways of describing uh, tasks. Right. It's a absolutely, uh, brilliant so way to do it and then that's interesting uh to sort of make it especially with kids right to make it do it organically like that it makes a lot of sense and then it's not weird to them when they grow up no yeah no, so a... so i, I just I, I know i've i've talked to you for longer than i've taken more time than i said i would but i just want to ask uh, one question uh to, to and then i'll get you out of here on this with this book who is the who is your intended audience for this? Is it the, the the obviously there's I'm sure a sociological academia audience that will take this in and enjoy it. But in terms of the public, it strikes me as this is something that people who even if they don't have a trans individual in their family or, or whatever, th this is something that somebody who wants to learn more about what is going on with gender identity could learn a lot from this. And is that something that you had in mind in drafting this? Absolutely. I wrote it. And with the support of my editor, you know, who really encouraged me in this direction, I wrote it so that, um, you know, it wouldn't just appeal to an academic audience, that it would, you know, I wanted to educate parents, trans kids, you know, about, you know, some of the biases that, you know, they may bring to, uh, you know, their movements, um, you know, a, a lot of them are pretty sharp. But, you know, I just wanted to say, OK, look, you know, while we're fighting for trans kids, let's make sure we're fighting for all trans kids. I also wrote it for policymakers, for teachers, for anybody who interacts with kids. And, you know, I did some readings uh, shortly after the book came out. And one of them was in New York City at Blue Stockings. And a pair of grandparents were in the audience and they had a grandchild who they just learned as trans. They were really confused and frightened and they came to my talk and, you know, they were there for my reading and they came up and asked me some questions afterwards and they seemed to be really reassured. Like I, I think I gave them the information that they needed to think, okay, like this is actually all right. And this is what I need to do. And this is why. And, you know, so I, I wrote it really for, uh, you know, the general public in, in the most, you know, accurate way that anyone who works with kids or cares about kids or, you know, is interested at all in gender and sexuality, that they have something to learn from it. And the, the thing that I think is so powerful is that most of the teaching is done by the parents and the kids that I interview. Right. And, and it's too, and it's not just, as you mentioned, in terms of the academic scholarly part of it, it's not just the theory of gender. It really delves into the day-to-day -day realities mm -hmm. of what trans kids are living through and, and what their experiences are like. So it's not just this abstract academ academic with, you know, all that kind of stuff. It, it really sort of gets into what it is to, to live 
uh, as a trans individual and and the how that then uh, the offshoot of that with parents and familial relationships and all that so so you're right that for people who aren't in a scholarly uh, profession that this is a book that would be very applicable because it, it has that you know brass tack sort of what is it like on the on the ground uh, information yeah, and I tell people, you know, I say, you know, there's a little bit of theoretical stuff really in the book, but you can just skip that and go to the stories. <laughs> you know, like, like most of the book is based on stories um, because I think stories are the most powerful way to, you know, communicate. And, yeah, I mean, you know, like there are parts of the book that you might read and go, hmm, and I just move on, skip it. Right, yeah, go to the parts that you're more interested in there. So. Yeah. Uh, Yes. So uh, again, the title of the book is The Trans Generation, How Trans Kids and Their Parents Are Creating a Gender Revolution from Our Friends at the University of Regina Press. The paperback version is available. So you certainly you can find it uh, through the University of Regina and I'm sure at, uh, you know, Amazon and uh, all those other places where people sell books. So so definitely do check it out and very much would like to extend our thanks to the University of Regina Press for helping set this up. And of course, Anne Travers, who took the time to join us all the way from a bright and sunny Vancouver. Thanks so much for the time, Anne. It's been my pleasure, Sean. Thank you. If you have any questions or comments for the show, you can find us at historyslam at gmail.com. I am at Dr. Shawnee Fever on Twitter. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Google Play, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your show. Give us the likes, ratings, all that fun stuff to keep the show going. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. But until then, if you're out and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.